I can tell you for the ones that are listening to this that are in their 40s or 50s, what this gives you is the opportunity to build a business with your partner who you may not have been able to do that with over these years if you've been working in separate jobs. Create security for your children, not just for yourself, but for your children and leave a legacy. If you have the right tax planning, you could have assets worth a million, two million, three million, whatever, pounds, euros, dollars, whatever currency you're listening in. And those assets become assets for your children in the future, not just the value of those assets, but the income. You can actually, they can inherit the income. Hello, this is Dr. Rowe, and you're listening to the Growth Tribes podcast with Dr. Rowe and Harms. This is the podcast where two completely different generations tackle the most challenging topics that people are facing today. Above all else, the main reason that we chose to develop and record these podcasts is because we both have a passion for helping people go through life transformation, for improving their lives, for taking their lives to a completely different level. And it's our hope, our genuine sincere hope, that by the end of each of these episodes, you'll have gained at least one insight that you can take away and apply directly into your own life practical tools, voices that come in from both generations, the younger generation with tips and tools and the older generation with a sense of wisdom and experience so that you can help unlock your true potential to give the opportunity to make changes both on a personal, professional, financial and relationship level and to give you a chance to impact both your lives and the lives of other people around you. So we welcome you. Welcome to the Growth Tribes podcast. Hello, it's Harms here, and welcome to another episode of the Growth Tribes podcast. We are very much, uh, myself and Ro, are very much excited to talk about this episode because the topic on this episode, because we, it's almost a passion area of ours. He's been teaching it for a very long time, and we'll talk about that in detail in a moment. And essentially, we both are involved in this kind of business, which is a wealth generating vehicle. Now, why is this an opportune time? I mean, we've been itching to talk about this for quite a while, but with what's happening at the moment, with what's happening out there in the world, this is a great opportunity for anybody listening to double down and start to learn about wealth generating vehicles and wealth assets and all of these amazing things that people have been making money from for generations and generations and generations. So without boiling it yet, I'm going to let Ro reveal which wealth vehicle we're talking about, unless you've already I understood it from the title of this episode, uh, but, but hi, Ro, uh, there's essentially three wealth vehicles and financial security mechanisms or machines. Now, can you expand on them and then let the listeners know which one we're going to be focusing in on today? Yeah, very good. Thank you, Harms. And thank you all for attending again. Another one of our podcasts. It is definitely a hot subject. I think for anyone listening to this right now, we're um, right in the middle as we're recording this of the global challenges with COVID-19 and what I think it's done is it's shaken that fundamental stability that everybody relies on on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis which is our income, our jobs, our careers, our businesses and I definitely think people have been forced to pause and just question what they're doing and is there another way, is there a better way or is it another way I can put alongside what I'm doing at the moment to create more financial security which kind of leads us through the door of wealth 
financial security, financial independence, whatever phraseology you want to put about, about that. And as you walk through that door, there's these three huge signs in front of you. And each one of those signs represents a vehicle, a passage, a path, direction you can go. And sign number one is property investing. So it's developing a business around property whereby you create not just assets for the future, i.e. building a portfolio that might be worth millions in the future, but also building a passive income, a monthly income that can come in, whether it's a thousand pounds, euros, dollars, 2,000, 5,000, 10,000, 15, whatever your chosen figure is. So it's a business where the fundamental asset base is property. So that's the first path, the first passage, the first vehicle, whatever term you want to put against it. Yep. Second one is business. And business has many guises, it has many faces. You can be online like Harminder does, and we'll have another podcast on that where you have businesses that are online and you operate and have your income, not necessarily virtually, but certainly beyond your physical world. It's out there globally, right through to you could have a shop on the high street where you sell things, you sell widgets, you have a dry cleaners, you sell clothes, you might be selling gadgets, televisions, phones, whatever your business is, and everything in between that. So businesses could involve providing services, going into people's homes and providing a service there. So there's a whole range of different businesses. If you want to call them uh, physical businesses versus online businesses, that might be a simple way to, to break it down. And that's another way to generate security and long-term financial wealth. And then the third area, and it's a tricky one actually when I refer to this, because we used to say trading, trading the stock market. That's the term that I certainly studied 20, 25 years ago, trading the stock market. But it's a bit broader than that now. So I tend to say to people uh, investing in the markets or trading the markets, because when we talk about trading the markets or trading or investing in the markets, that can be everything from currencies where you literally look at currency exchange rates and you trade whether the market's going up or down there across to buying and selling stocks. So you buy a stock and sell it in the future, get a profit from that, or buying and holding a stock, getting a yield from that as a shareholder in that company, right across to looking at commodities, for example, gold, silver, oil. So you can buy into these things. And then you go right over to the other side where you can buy options on something. So you don't even actually physically have to own it, but you have the right to own it as a stock. You can have the option on that stock and make money if that option goes up or down. And that's another way to create wealth. So th these are the three big vehicles harms, and they can be yeah. both passive and active, meaning passive, you make the money while you're not even actually physically doing anything in the business. And all three of those vehicles have the ability to do that, by the way. And they can be active where you're actually in the business, whether it's property business or trading. And the time you spend there, you generate some cash for yourself, whether it's a thousand, ten thousand, a hundred thousand, whatever. And that's how you build your wealth, both parallel strategies, passive and active, and then three main vehicles. I'll pause for a minute because I'm running out of breath. <laughs> okay. So you're going to have to keep the breath because <laughs> what's interesting here is you've done all three of those. Yes. So question number one is, which one would you like to focus on today? I know the answer. Which one would you like to focus on today? And I know you could talk all day about all three of these. So we're going to have to get really focused because, for example, I'll let you answer question number one first. So question number one is property. So today's focus is around real estate and it's a passion for both of us. And right now, I think it's a great subject to talk about. Obviously, we've only got maybe an hour and a half to, to share, but we'll pack as much as we can in to give you some insights. 
which leads into question number two, which is, I know you can talk about this subject all day. And actually, you've been teaching this now, just correct me if I'm wrong, for two decades. Yes, uh, almost, in just under, live, yeah. In front of live audiences, you've been teaching it online, you've got video educational products around this topic, uh, you've got a blog. I mean, this is a, a big passion of yours, and you've been investing for longer, but you've been teaching it for two decades. Now, what, what way would you like to structure today? Because, for example, one of your fundamental ways you teach it is over a three-day session. And people come yeah. and spend three. We, we cannot speak for three days. Uh, and certainly I can't. Otherwise, Gina would kill me if I'm speaking for three days on this podcast. So how would you like to structure today? Uh, it's a great question, actually. And it is it's such a deep subject. And even when people come to see me and maybe spend three days, and you're often on those events and, and you're up teaching as well, Harms. But we know beyond that, there's a lot of depth behind it. So somebody might come and do a three-day fundamental training and then decide to specialize in a specific area, maybe even go and have mentoring and coaching. So it is a subject that is so deep and so broad that we can go in lots of different directions. So I think the easiest way is there's these 10 essential components that I've been teaching now for many years. If I go onto a stage and I'm invited to speak for an hour or two, I'll often compact everything into these 10 components. So I think what if we can do it, it'd be great to do it today, Harms. And maybe if I walk through the 10 components and then you just come in and add your experience and knowledge to it as well, that'd be brilliant. Okay, that sounds good. And for information for people, we could spend an hour on each of these components. Oh I my imagine gosh, we could easy. spend three well, hours but we'll, we'll try to keep it we could spend a day yeah we'll try to keep it focused but the first thing i wanted to speak about was why i personally think property is such a fantastic vehicle and almost what it's done for myself and my family just some headlines uh, and these will make sense maybe you can refine these or add a few points to these or, or, or take sure. take something so i think the first two big things is simply the fact that you've got a feeling and you've got an actual long-term security. So the reason I said feeling is because I've seen you recently did a Facebook Live on Maslow's hierarchy of needs and just reminding people of that. Now, the feeling of security comes from the fact that a property portfolio, you can talk about the strategies in a moment, a property portfolio can generate a income, a net income after all expenses, which ticks that base level box on the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is security. You feel secure in your life because this base level of income is coming in passively every single month. That is probably number one. Number two is besides from the income that comes in every single month, you start to develop an equity over time, which can be released in the future or passed through to families, whether it's a legacy or whether it's through trusts or whatever. Now, that's fantastic. So you've got a short-term win, which is income today, and then you've got a long-term win, which is equity that builds up as the property value increases and as the debt depreciates. And I know we're getting complex here, as the debt depreciates over time. So there are two big wins. Would you agree with those or is there anything you'd like to add? Yeah, I mean, the thing about properties, as you just said there, there are so many different benefits. Mm. If I just wear my older hat for a minute, for those of you listening, I would add and say that if you're in your 40s, 50s, 60s, Harminder's pretty much covered all the stops there, even what he's talked about there, whether you're in the younger generation or older. But if you're 40s, 50s or 60s, I think for a lot of us that have got children, as we're working, particularly with COVID-19, coronavirus affecting so many people's careers and jobs, there's these massive question marks over what the have I been doing all these years? I've worked, but I haven't built any equity 
into myself. I haven't developed any value apart from I've worked and got paid, but that's purely cash flow. What I haven't done is created any equity in me as a brand, me as a human being. My only equity is my years of experience in this job. But unfortunately, right now, there's younger people coming through who are getting those jobs and they don't need my experience in the company. And actually, I'm kind of being moved sideways. So I think the older generation at the moment are feeling a sense of frustration, maybe undervalued. And I'm interested to see if people listening to this agree with this. And also a sense of lack of security because we were sold this dream, certainly when I grew up, get a good job, work really hard to get a degree, maybe get a PhD if you can, climb the corporate ladder, pay off your mortgage, and you'll stay working for 40 years and you'll go into this amazing pension which will look after you. That is complete beep. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it doesn't it's just rubbish. I mean, it's, it doesn't exist in today's world. Okay, granted, there might be some government type careers that people can get into. And maybe people might argue, well, I go into the military for a period, I can come out. But even there, you know, that working length has been protracted now. And once people are in it, if they lose that inspiration about what they're doing, and they suddenly think, shit, I've been here for 10 years now, I don't know if I want to carry on doing this, but I've got to stay here now, because I'm on this plan to get this pension. And I remember when I was in my, I didn't tell you this, Harms, actually, when I was in my career, just after I left with my PhD and went into work, and I started on this really low salary, which I was shocked at. That was the biggest wake-up call. I think I left university at 25, 26 years of age, having got a PhD, and I started on £16,000 a year. And I remember wow. thinking, oh, my God, all this experience, one of probably four or five people in the world that knew what I knew. And yet I had to start right at the bottom. They said, well, you still got to get the experience in the company now and prove your wow. worth, etc." And I think when I left and became self-employed, which was I don't know how many years later, my salary had gone up to 20,000 and then I could make more if I was on a per diem out on site. It was ridiculous. So. I can tell you for the ones that are listening to this that are in their 40s or 50s, what this gives you is the opportunity to build a business with your partner who you may not have been able to do that with over these years if you've been working in separate jobs, create security for your children, not just for yourself, but for your children and leave a legacy. If you have the right tax planning, you could have assets worth a million, two million, three million, whatever, pounds, euros, dollars, whatever currency you're listening in. And those assets become assets for your children in the future, not just the value of those assets, but the income. You can actually, they can inherit the income once you've passed away. So there's, there's some really big benefits to this. Massive benefits. And I think what's fascinating is the scenario that you had after your PhD is exactly the same as what my generation are facing now and the generation coming up after yeah, right. us, which is, True. look, I, I've just probably spent if you're in the US is in six figures if you're in the UK it's 35 45 50,000 pound on a higher advanced education a university university degree and when you come out you start at the bottom you're on a 20 22k salary when if you think about how much of a jump that is from your era realistically it's it's just absurd so nothing's changed in that system it's the identical system so if my generation and are listening to this Harms, that's assuming they can get into the career they want to get into exactly i mean there's there's a real wide-ranging set of statistics on this but one stat i read a couple of years ago is there's something like half the graduates in the uk at the time were not even getting into the careers they wanted to get into they were going into fast food and whatever it was to just get some form of employment 
Yes, that's clear. It's evident. I mean, there's lots of surveys now being displayed showing that that's a, a serious reality. So if, if somebody's listening in my generation saying, yeah, yeah, but it's going to be different for me. It's going to be different for mm-hmm. me. Yeah. No, the reality mm-hmm. is it's not. <laughs> it's just Our it's survey just says, ah, ah, no. <laughs> exactly. And computer says no. So that's fact. So there are some fantastic benefits. And if I was to just remind myself of why I did it and why I started to build a property business. It was really about buying back my time as soon as possible because I was thinking, okay, so I've got a career. It's pretty good or what I assumed was good. I'm sort of enjoying it, but they really want a lot of time for the, for, for what I actually do at work. But the reality was I was looking ahead at about 45 years minimum worth of work and that's if they didn't extend the pension or working age so a minimum 45 years worth of work the biggest benefit to me put the cash aside put all of that aside was the fact that I could buy back that time to go and do some things that I wanted to do with my life which was go on longer holidays spend time with my wife potentially be a full-time parent drop my kids to school pick my kids up hang out with them have the energy to hang up with them so for me it was really just buying back the time it wasn't about chasing millions so if somebody's listening to this and they're thinking okay yeah but property investors are ah, they're all millionaires and blah 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 whatever you whatever your stigma is attached to this right now just know that it's not necessarily about chasing the millions it's all possible but the first target for me was just buying back those years that I would spend traveling on a motorway to work, committing to building somebody else's business, coming home exhausted. My wife, my children or whatever in the future would see the worst of me and the people at work would see the best of me. And that was not on. For me, it was just not on. It's not happening. So the idea was simply to buy back those as many years of those 45 years I was supposed to spend in work was to buy that back. And I managed to do that. So for somebody listen to this in your if you're 25, it's all good. You can start then. If you're 23, it's all good. You can start then. If you're 20, it's all good. You can start then. The benefits are incredible. Yeah. And I think just adding to that as well, what Harminder's made is a very valid point. I remember when I first went over to Scandinavia, my other half Scandinavian, she's Danish. And what people said, what do you do? And I said, I'm a property investor. And that was a mistake I discovered afterwards because the perception there at the time, this is going back a while now, obviously, was oh, right, you're a, you're a landlord. And for a lot of people, they, they saw landlords, and it's the same thing here, as sort of money-grabbing and self-interested, uh, just purely wanting to become wealthy off the back of other people. But actually, if you think about what we're doing is we're providing homes for people that aren't in a position to be able to buy. So I have been a tenant over my lifetime on several occasions and was extremely grateful for the landlord that provided me with that home. I never once perceived them as being money-grabbing. And I think that's the challenge, I think, with any business and those of you listening to this that may be feeling a sense of resistance to the concept of wealth, the concept of creating more money than you may feel you physically need. The universe works in a beautiful way. If you can create abundance in your life and you can allow yourself to overflow, it gives you choices then to direct that overflow of money. Whereas if you're living in a place of lack where you're only ever just surviving and then you watch a program about a charity that really needs help to give money to them and you're just thinking, I'd love to do that, but I don't even have money myself. That's partly because the, and I remember feeling this many, many years ago, the frustration of not being able to give financially. And for a while, I used to blame career and poor salary in my job. Very quickly, I realized I have a choice. 
to do something different. I have a choice to create an abundance which allows me to overflow and then give of that overflowing cup. So I think that's the way we want to walk into this podcast with you so that you're not thinking of this as some huge money grabbing operation where you're going to go out and become a multi multi millionaire as a property investor and then rake it in and look after yourself actually you have the chance to build it even within the portfolio build part of the portfolio so it has social consciousness built into it and we can tackle that whilst we're going through today's podcast fantastic so i think that's a nice point to now start talking about the 10 steps the 10 components you would consider any property investor or anybody thinking about investing in property or starting a property business to to start with. So do you want to kick off with step number one or component number one? And then I guess we just have a conversation around each one because both of us have a different viewpoint on it, but also we have a different level of experience on each of these as well. I think it's a good idea. As we go through these, we'll follow them in a sequence. And overall, this is actually probably the ideal way to do it if you're listening and you're making notes however the real mechanism of real estate is that as you start to build it you're going to jump in and out of these different components and many of them will be operating at the same time parallel to each other but to help you give some sort of structure to this we'll go through the 10 and then you can start to see how it works so number one is simply vision and people say to me what do you mean by vision i've got a vision and i say okay well what's your vision well i I want to be want to be rich okay so outside of that what else do you want well i want to have more money in the bank okay so if i gave you a pound (laughs) you're going to have more money in the bank yeah okay well i want a bit more than a pound all right well here's two pounds (laughs) so when we talk about vision here what harminder and i are really talking about is a painting a really clear picture of how as you just heard from harminder there about how he wants to when he sat back and thought about this, and I still remember seeing him in the audience there with his, at the time, his girlfriend, now his wife, Gina, his eyes were completely engaged. I mean, some people sit in the audience and they kind of intellectually get it and they go, yeah, this would be nice. Others, other extreme would be a Harminder whose eyes were just completely open, taking loads of notes, fully engaged because he could see beyond the seminar. He could see, um, I'm speaking on behalf of you, but hopefully I'm correct. (laughs) But what I saw was you could see beyond the room. You could see beyond the slides. You could see beyond the content that was delivering. There was something bigger for you. Would that be Mm. correct? That would be correct. And and it was that vision. And I think when you look back in hindsight and you think, actually, what was it that piqued my interest and had me so engaged and taking notes and being very studious it was very much the fact that I had a I had built up prior and it was being enhanced in regards to having a really vivid image of what I would like my future to look like and is what I'm doing now benefiting that vision and the answer was no so it was really much very much what do I need to do to get to that vision of mine and that was the first vision and I would say the vision always evolves over time as well. Yeah, if you're listening to this and thinking, cool, well, yeah, do we need to do that? Can we just skip to like the nitty gritty? When you're on the road driving an hour, two hours, maybe to look at one property only, could be you're looking at 20 in the same day, or you're sat there on an evening with your computer out and you've analyzed 35 properties straight in a row and not one of them seems to be stacking up, or you've had a load of offers rejected or the banks start messing you around because something in your property doesn't quite fit with their criteria, whatever it is, it's only when 
you have a vision in front of you, you have something to turn to. It's it's no different to us driving on a motorway for two hours to get to somewhere. If the screen is dirty, if there's fog, if there's a blizzard coming across the road and we can't see where we're going and we don't have a sat nav to tell us where we're going, we're going to wander around. And people do this aimlessly in their careers. They start off all passionate, as you mentioned earlier on, about getting out there and saying, right, I want to start my career, I want to get going. And then after a couple of years, they go off, they party a bit, they try lots of things, they spend pretty much everything they earn. And before they know it, the only vision is getting to the end of the week. And then it's getting to June when I can go on holiday. And then they come back from the holiday and it's getting to, I know, the the autumn holiday. And then it's getting to Christmas holiday. So the vision becomes two or three times a year, getting to the next holiday. What we're talking about here is a life vision. Hmm. How's it going to look? How's it going to feel? What's your daily life going to be like? How are you going to be able to treat yourself or your family to holidays? Where would you live? What would you drive? Would you be spending more time in the business or less time? Would you like to be a hands-on property investor or a hands-off property investor? Do you want to have millions in the bank or do you just want to have, you know, maybe two or three million pounds worth of property and, I know, 5,000, 7,000 pounds a month cash flow? So that has to be so vivid and so clear that every decision you make in your portfolio leads you to that direction. And if you ask me, well, why is that so important? I made the mistake at the beginning of having a really big dream, but at the same time, hanging out with some pretty ambitious people. And we found we started doing investments that weren't necessarily taking us towards that vision, but we did them because they were exciting strategies. And if this makes sense, Harms, but we got carried away and we did certain property deals which we shouldn't have done. Had we just stuck yeah. to the original core vision, and this is what I do with people now you know it's like i found this great deal i get that but what's your primary vision well i want to get to here but guess what if i do this this and this they've told me i'm going to make this much i know but that's going to distract you like that's taking a fork in the road and then spending the next two hours on a track or a path that's not actually going in the right direction you then come back again get on the main road and carry on towards your end direction so the vision is not just to excite you but it's like your compass set for north. So the minute you slightly go off set off a track, you check on your compass, it brings you back. It keeps you going in the right direction. That's the purpose of this. That's fantastic. And I, I would agree, Ro, because I had veered, of course, whilst I was build, building my business, I was looking at different, <laughs> which we're going to go into part two, which is different strategies, Yeah, which were just not aligned with my vision. So let me give an example. Right, If I want to be a full-time parent uh, you know in year you know five or six of, of building my business in my vision is I want to be a full-time parent and I want to have the energy to spend with my my children and uh, pick them up from school okay so that's that's my vision part of that is is my genuine true vision now if I was a property developer and I was handling I don't know let's say planning part of my role within the development part of what we do now that could be very time intensive so that particular strategy doesn't align with my vision and it's actually veering me off course completely. Yeah. It's taking me away from the very thing that I set out to do. So if you're listening at home, that hopefully that's an example of why we're trying to tie vision with uh, building a business, because this applies for any business, I guess, Ro, because some businesses are so time intensive, you will start to question why you even built them in the first place mm. when it's taking you away from the reason you wanted to build a business period. So I think it's really important to anchor this in 
and take this part really seriously. But I do find that people often skip this part, Rowan, and they wonder why they're veering. And they're like, why is it not working out for me? You know, this deal was supposed to make this much, this much money. I was supposed to have this many houses by this time. And it just doesn't seem to be clicking. Well, okay, so talk to me about why you started this. Talk to me about your vision. Uh, what was your goals behind the business? Um, I just wanted to make a bit of money. Mm, yeah, okay, exactly. Okay, well, that's why. that. Okay, so that's maybe why you're veering off course. Because when you speak to enough people, you realize, you know, money's not the real reason. It's a nice, it's a big, massive bonus byproduct. Don't get me wrong, but it's not the real reason. It's, it's typically what would you spend that money on? What would that money allow you to do? And that starts to form the vivid picture. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a great way to step into the next part, because once you've got that vivid picture and you're clear, the next thing is, how do I get there? So now mm. I've got this vision in front of me. So step number two or component number two, because actually you would come back in and revisit this component several yes. times. Over, we we over use the, the phrase years. component because step is correct. It's not like uh, yeah. these are not steps in order. Like you exactly. said, you can come back and use these, access these components whenever you like. Yeah. So component number two is education and strategy. And they do sit alongside each other because in the process of following a strategy you can't just randomly go and do that strategy you're going to have to learn the strategy and if you're going to do it properly you're going to have to learn it at a specialized level not just at the surface so let's tackle education very briefly and then talk about the strategy i think this is a good chance for you and i to open up on maybe the three core umbrella areas and then we could just drill into those so education you can learn about property from a whole range of different environments so let's just list some of them out you could read books on them so you can go out and read there's absolutely countless books whichever country you come from when I first went over to Australia for example to teach over there i would got a very dear friend of mine who's still over there been in property for a long time so he started to talk to me about it but I still had to upskill myself on that market even though I knew the basic strategies and knew how to teach it and knew how to do it I wanted to be clear on what that market was huge numbers of books over in Australia same thing in the States same thing if you go to Singapore not so many in Singapore because the market doesn't work so well there but there are books there UK massive amount of books so you have books you have audio programs a lot of stuff is free out there at the moment so you can get some free content and I'll come to that in a minute maybe we can talk into that space and try and differentiate between free and paid actually in a minute harms I think that'd be good mm. to cover so there's there's audio programs there's video if you go as, as Harminder mentioned if you have a look at say for example my Instagram page there's a lot of short five to ten minute videos that I've done addressing the typical questions that come up these type of videos and audios aren't intended to make you a professional property investor. That's not the intention. They're there to really help uncover some of the mystery around real estate such that you can then make at least an educated decision as to whether I want to go and specialize in this more. So I think the mistake that people make is they'll go watch lots of free content and think they're an expert and actually they're not. They're just getting little snippets. It's like take it's going into a cheese tasting area or a wine tasting. You have a sip of everything, but you don't really get to take the full amount of it. You don't get to sample the whole thing. Yeah, because it was, so, uh, for example, when I went to a wine tasting many years ago on a date with Gina, it was a case of 
oh yeah let's taste we, we tasted a whole bunch of wines we were told how to taste them properly when yeah. we left there we felt like wine connoisseurs we felt like sommeliers we felt like we're experts and then when we went off to try it at a restaurant the following week we was like ah we actually have no idea how to taste this wine because we felt like we got this you know the free tasting the little bit of information in little jigsaw pieces <laughs> exactly. And then I just I just couldn't replicate it. You know, when I went to the restaurant, I was like, we've just gone to the wine tasting. We learned how to taste wine. And I'm sure there's people at home uh, certainly have gone through the same experience. And it's like, actually, I have no idea. Wine just tastes like it's going to get me drunk. And that's pretty much it. So so I like the well, wine I mean, the, good, the good thing is that you at least you had some idea and you could start to taste the wine. And maybe the, that's the biggest challenge is you don't it's not as nice as you thought maybe didn't make the right choice but you could get drunk with property you'd lose money <laughs> so <laughs> if, if you did if you applied the wine tasting metaphor to property investing we have and i say we because harmind has been on so many events with me over the years we have met countless people that did the wine tasting on property they, they did online education a little bit of free stuff maybe read a couple of books listened to some podcasts went into property and lost money or were not cash flowing or just had bad experiences and it really put them off and that's when they had then chosen to come into the next level which is really a face-to-face -face educational experience so you're coming into a classroom with someone that's experienced that's been doing it for a long time and make a note that there is a difference between a trainer and an investor who's a trainer so so I invest in property and I train. So I'm able to talk from a place of experience. But there are people out there that will run a course, but they don't actually invest themselves. If they do, they may have one or two properties. And that's also a challenge because you're then dealing with potentially an individual who has a small amount of experience in one area, but not a breadth of experience. So the longer somebody's been in the game, ideally, if they've been teaching it as well, you're going to have a much more rounded individual sharing with you. And then you go right to the other extreme now where you go from entry level education to specialized education, where now you're going to specialized trainings. You're learning about a specific area of property, specific area of tax, for example, specific area of financing. And that's maybe a two or three day concentrated, a bit like doing a PhD now in that particular subject. And then the piece de resistance is to have your own private mentor, someone that can coach, mentor you. Uh, you've got coaching actually in between that. So from the classroom, you've got coaching which would be, say, for example, maybe myself and Harmind talking to you on the phone and coaching you or a property coach doing that with you on a weekly, every month, live on, on a webinar, for example, could be a small group coaching. It's great because you're now talking to, questioning, getting feedback, going out, doing it, coming back, coming to the table, telling your coach what you've done and they're refining you. But the next level above that and the ultimate is both myself and Harminder have done this where we've been we had this experience in our early days is to go out with a professional property mentor into the field where they will actually physically help you through the process of putting offers in and negotiating, buying the properties, repositioning the deal, meeting the power team. That is the spectrum of education. So before we go into strategies, anything you want to add to that, Harms? You've nailed it there, which is there's a nice pathway there. And the pathway is almost there. So, for example, this podcast episode sits nicely between the free and entry point. Yeah, you know, exactly. where we're going, to, we're going to discuss the subject. Giving you insights. Yeah. Insights, demystify it completely free. You can listen to it. And that's, that's an idea of. And it's not meant to be, OK, I've listened to this. I'm going to go become an investor now. That's not that's not the intention behind this. 
Correct. So, so I like that almost pathway, and that pathway is no is no dissimilar to any sort any sort of career. Because if I look back, I actually did an apprenticeship now as a railway engineer. So that's what I did. Um, I didn't go to university to start with. So it was a case of okay. So you go to an apprenticeship open day, and they will give you this this discovery. They will talk to you about what this is, what the benefits are, why we should choose this company versus another apprenticeship project perfect okay now we would then apply and then we now commit to the apprenticeship now committing to the apprenticeship is the next step and then once we commit to the apprenticeship we had to decide what to specialize in so for example any railway people listening it was do you work on the track do you work as an electrician or do you specialize in the signals so I said, okay, I've, I've liked what I've seen. I'm going to specialize in the signals. I'll go specialize in the signals. Then the pathway was get to work. And then the final thing was a university program, which gives you some sort of engineering degree. So it's a nice, steady pathway uh, to entry level because you, we need that level of, is this for me? How's the options out there? The books, the audios, the videos. And I would definitely recommend... And I'll leave the links in the show notes at growthtribes.com forward slash podcast. But those who are actually flicking around on their phone right now, I would head to Instagram and follow uh, Dr. Rowe's account because he's got some cracking videos on there for property. And that's at drrowe.tv. And I know you left it for me to say your Instagram because sometimes you completely forget what your Instagram is as well. Um, (laughs) Or or I'd say head to Rowe's website, which has got some blog posts on property as well. And that's two decades plus worth of information there and experience that he's sharing with you. So and also, Harms, they could go and have a look at your Instagram because you do some stuff when you're out about looking, I know, with oh, either on your own or with your lovely wife. So maybe you could just let them know what that is. Yes. So what I love is we're at different places. So if you listen to me in Rose, Rose at a different place in his investing journey, whereas I'm actually still building my business. So Rose building his business in a different style yeah maybe slightly can, probably more hands-off i think hands that's the easiest way best. to simplify isn't it yeah, yeah whereas mine is actually semi hands-on hands-off so i sit somewhere in between for my clients is very much hands-on so yeah follow me at, at tour talks you guys should be following me anyway by now and you'll sort of see the glimpses the behind the scenes us what kind of things we do these components will start to make sense when you start to see what i do on a daily basis around the property business so yeah awesome idea Rose. so the other point you mentioned with education was free versus paid so mm. how would you describe that to somebody because there's a lot of people out there who say oh my god don't pay for property education it's all here in this book or it's all here in this well so i was going to ask group. you what's the millennials <laughs> view on that because I, I think you just probably nailed it there but what just talk from a millennials perspective just for a minute i think we're split so I, i'm a millennial myself and if I want to master something, I am not naive enough to know that the information is going to be free. So when I look for education, and this is me just talking to you, Ro, when I look for education, it must be packaged. It must be packaged up. It must have an end-to-end process. It must have a system. It must have steps one to 100, how many steps there are within this process that I specialize in. There must be people around there who are dedicated because I have paid for their service dedicated to serve me. Now, this would be the case in anything, but certainly when it comes to education, it's a case of, I know that if I pick up the phone, there's going to be somebody on the other line. I know every Wednesday there's going to be a certain service being provided for me in regards to education. So for me, it's very black and white, which is if I want specialist knowledge, I'm just going to pay for it and I'm going to pay for somebody's time. 
who's associated with whatever education service I'm buying into. That's a that's a no brainer for me. I, I can't see any way else around it for one reason specifically, which is my life is very short, as if as is all of ours on this beautiful planet. And I cannot waste my time going through the forums, the Facebook groups, the blogs, trying to pick apart all of the, trying to put together. I feel like if I was to do this and I hadn't gone through the process I'd gone through myself about learning it and specializing, I would be trying to put together a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle, but there's no picture on the jigsaw piece. This is the worst thing. I have to jump in here because, and this is with, with respect, but as a, as somebody that's been through this myself and uh, the older generation what's for and, and as a trainer i think speaker in this field for a long time now what's frustrating for me is i, I totally agree with you however there's still a large number of younger people that don't Correct. have that same mindset as you have so i get people coming in and like, oh yeah but my girlfriend said this or my dad told me this my mum said i shouldn't do this i just go and i should just go and study it on my own and i'm thinking the amount of money that people have lost trying to do this particular thing property on their own is millions and millions if you can you know if you add it up cumulatively and yet there's a parent or a brother or a sister who's never done real estate telling them just go and do it you know you don't need these people to help you and then of course they become the victims of a bad deal and then they're the ones that say it doesn't work where it actually does work correct so my second phrase was going to be there's half of us i look there's no exact figure in his what i actually see is a lot of millennials now shifting and my generation they're shifting and they're realizing actually i've got to get on with this and i've got to do it properly so we do have that category but there is also that category which you've described Ro, which is i think it comes from a place of ego which is i don't need you i don't need you to tell i've got plenty of time to make some mistakes i want to learn and experience these mistakes by myself but i think what they miss is the fact that property is not like drinking a bad wine it's very much okay you're going to lose twenty thousand pound you're going to potentially time time it's time lost and like i said imagine how long it takes you to put together a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle where there's no picture on the jigsaw puzzle and i've started the reason i'm using this is i've started to see these being sold online imagine it's because of the coronavirus and lockdown but people are selling a thousand piece see-through jigsaw puzzles so there's no picture. It's just a see-through jigsaw puzzle. I think it's fantastic. And that's what it's like. You know, and I've, I've looked, I've had friends who haven't gone through the process I have who decided not to. And they're still putting that jigsaw piece together. And I know the reason I know that is because the kind of basic level, entry level questions they ask me were, are so basic. And I, and, I, and I have to sometimes be honest with them and say, look, I haven't got time to put your jigsaw piece together for you because we're, we're quite busy ourselves building our business. So I think that's the difference between free and paid from from my experience. Yeah. Now, this is remember, we're still on component number two and we've spent probably more time (laughs) than we planned to talk there. But I think it's because I mean, I've I've had literally obviously sharing in in a on a free podcast here, but I've had literally tens, if not hundreds of high volume or certainly awkward or uncomfortable argument stroke conversations with people over the years over this one subject where where a partner or somebody is not prepared to invest this time and money into learning to do it properly and yet they'll go off and do a career for years which ends up being the career they didn't want to do or they'll go and do a degree or something which they were told to do by somebody else and still had to pay for it either way so 
the reason that I want to emphasize it more so here on this podcast as you're listening is because it's through the education that you get clarity on your strategy. Now, remember, this is component number two, education and strategy. Strategies fall into three key areas. The first area is cash generation. This is where you actively put time in. And these are property strategies. And off the back of that, you would generate cash. The next category within the three strategy areas is passive income. So this is where you put the work in once and then on a monthly basis for a year, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, whatever you choose, you would receive a monthly passive income. In other words, every month in your bank account arrives a certain amount of money, the outgoings go out. And what's left is your net cash flow. It could be 100, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, whatever it is for that particular property. So there are multiple strategies under that umbrella. So we've got cash, we've got passive income. And then the last one is creative, creative strategies. And creativity is about how to structure the deals, how to finance the deals, how to make the deals work in a way that's non-conventional. And you can apply the third category to the other two. So the other two are where you generate the money. The third component or the third category, I should say, the third umbrella is a several different ways of structuring the deal. And those can be applied to the first two. So you've got passive, cash and creative. So let's delve into a few of those harms just to give them some idea of them. So maybe we sort of alternate between the two of us and just pull some out of the bag because there's there's so many everybody if you're listening yeah that's fantastic so, before before you start though i've got a suggestion and for those listening at home i will i think we, we've got 10 components i think i i had a feeling we'll be able to talk about these for days so i think we should and let me know if you agree with this or not we should do five today and we'll do a part two follow-up where we do the final five okay and, and actually pick those up so there'll be a part one and a part two because yeah i like at, that idea we're at 45 yeah. minutes and we're still on component two so i know i and they're gonna love it at home because we're actually diving in deep here so i think we should dive in deeper than we had wanted to but we split it into two parts if you agree okay so the next podcast we record will be picking up the second half of this i think so yeah okay F- first good. five today f- first five well on knowing the next what one. <laughs> <laughs> knowing the umbrellas we're about to talk about i agree so Right. So let's let's start with cash. So if you're driving or running or you're not near any paper, we'll just talk about it. If you are near paper and you want to write these down, this is quite quite a good way to understand the difference. So cash generation is where you put this is like you being in your job where you put time in and you get paid for your time. The difference here is you can leverage. And what leverage means is that you can put a small amount of time into a cash generating strategy, but yield a lot bigger return on that time. I.e., you get paid a lot more for it. So we'll just do a, just maybe do a couple of examples. So I'm thinking, Harms, if I do flips and you do sourcing as an example, should we do that? Yeah, sounds good. All right. So I'll start with uh, flip. So for if you're listening to this, flip is an Americanism actually that we picked up years ago. But this is basically to buy, to renovate a property and then to sell that property on for a profit. So if you've ever watched some of these TV programs, and that's another way people think they can suddenly become a property successful millionaire by watching TV programs, that's not the case. And in fact, tonight I'm doing a webinar with a gentleman called Martin Roberts from Homes Under the Hammer. And if you don't know who he is, he runs one of the most successful BBC 
daytime TV programs. And Martin and I will be talking to a group of people that are starting on their journey for property education. And he'll tell you that people have watched his program in the past and just off the back of the program had a go at doing property. But of course, you know, buying and selling, but they just didn't have enough detail. So be mindful of this. So what we do is with this strategy is we're buying a property at a discount. And the result we got there was we bought it from a distressed seller. Possibly they're going through a divorce. They might be going through a challenging financial situation and they're forced to sell the property quickly. We buy the property at a discount. If the property is distressed, it's run down, it's got damp, it's got the roof, bits are missing from the roof. Maybe it needs completely upgrading. It hasn't been touched for the last 10, 15 years. It will be in a depleted state. A, a distressed state is the term we typically use. And the objective here is to add a certain amount of value to that property. So you might buy it for 100,000. You might put 20,000 pounds, euros, dollars, whatever currency you're in of work into that property. So now you're in the property for 100 purchase plus 20,000 pounds worth of work. You're in it for 120. That property in the market because it's now in good condition, maybe worth 150. So there's a 30,000 pound profit there. So you choose to go and sell that property out to the market and you've walked away with a 30,000 pound profit. That would have taken you maybe a couple of months to buy it, another six to eight weeks to renovate the property for you're in it for four months and then you put it back out in the market and maybe it takes two months to sell. So you're six months from start to finish, seven months from start to finish. You've made 30,000 pound profit. How much time have you spent there? Well, if you use the team, which we'll talk about later in the second part of our, of our podcast, part two, we'll talk about this later in the podcast, your team could have put the work in. So Harminder has moved to the south of England just recently, but he has projects in the north of England, as do I, where we have people working on those projects for us. So we don't have to physically be there. So you may have only spent two or three or four or five days of your time to make £30,000 worth of profit. Whereas in your job, you might have had to work half a year to earn that. Whereas here you're only spending a handful of days because you're leveraging your builder's time. So your return on time invested, roti. If you're Indian and you listen to this or you're African, roti means uh, maybe a piece of flatbread with some curry. Whereas we're talking about return on time invested. So you've put a week's worth of time your builders have put the work in, but you've generated £30,000 worth of profit. That's a very good return on investment. So that is a cash generating strategy. You have had to put time into it, but you've made a lot better return than in your career. I'm going to pause there. Is, have I made that fairly straightforward? To very, listen? very simple. Very simple. So, well, you asked me to speak about sourcing. Uh, yeah, and that's yeah, that's great. And and we've we've had a sourcing company for the last 12 months as well. And, well, you're right. So we actually... Uh, just to show the, the amount of level that building a business can take, you know, we moved up to our area for 12 months, 12 months exactly, actually, before we moved down south in order to put all of these components in place and physically be there. So uh, that's why when I said we're I'm in a different stage to row when it comes to building a property business and continuing to expand it. I'm very much hands on with this. So the way to think about a sourcing company is to compare it to um, somebody similar, but not quite. So let's look at the business model and the business economic model of an estate agent. So if you think about a conventional estate agent and think about the two main parties that they would transact with. So number one is the person selling the house. Okay, that's person one they deal with. 
Person number two they deal with is the person actually buying the house. Now let's think about how do they make their money? Well, actually they make their money from the seller. So once that transaction is completed, the buyer buys the house, great. But the estate agent actually makes the money from the seller when the sale of the house is completed in a conventional estate agent model. Okay, so that's a conventional estate agent. And that's very common, known to everybody at estate agents have been operating for many, many years in the UK and even globally, actually. They're just known as different things like realtors, real estate agents mm. in the UK. You know, they're just estate agents classically known as. Now, let's compare that to a sourcing agent. Now, how does a sourcing agent make their money? What is the business model there? Well, a sourcing agent deals with the exact same people an estate agent does, but it deals with them slightly differently. So they have number one is the seller of the house. So what the sourcing agent will do is actually go find the sellers of these properties and actually find these properties themselves. And then the second person they deal with is actually the buyer. But these buyers are typically investors. So how does a sourcing agent make money in a different way to an estate agent? And uh, what's the difference there? Well, the sourcing agent doesn't make money from the seller who sells the house. They actually make money from the person buying. So yeah. the person buying the house would say to a sourcing agent, okay, I'm an investor and I'm looking for, and these just these are arbitrary numbers. So don't, don't think this is a good deal to go and start looking for immediately. So I'm going to, I'm going to keep them very low. I'm looking for a property that has a 6% yield. I've got a budget of about a hundred thousand pound. I'm looking in your area that you actually source in, which is, you know, West Yorkshire, South Yorkshire. It could be Liverpool, it could be Manchester, it could be Newcastle or wherever, South Wales. And I'm looking for that kind of deal. And the sourcing agent will turn around and say, yep, perfect. I can go find you that kind of deal. How many you are looking to buy this year? And they said, okay, I've got a budget of 100,000. Well, actually, with the kind of deals that we find, you probably can buy two of these. Great. Now, the sourcing agent will go out hunting for these deals, which meet the buyer's criteria. Then they will hand them to, they package them up, find it, package it up and say to the buyer, right, these are ready to go. The buyer will then pay a fee to the sourcing agent. And this fee can range from 1,500, 2,000 pound, anywhere up from 10,000 pound plus, depending on what strategy it is. So that's it in a nutshell. Uh, Ro, did that make sense? It did. And I think to point to add here to the listener is if you're in a career and you can learn the skill of finding properties, in other words, you get the right education to be able to do this, but then go and source these properties. So you would do the research to locate them, check the market there, check what the demand is, check what the cost of the work is needed to do the house up, maybe even engage with local letting agents, management companies to place tenants in there and do that work on behalf of the investor. What you're doing is you're basically presenting yourself as a business that provides that service. And that can be run parallel to whatever you're doing. So many people that I've taught over the years have gone on to generate 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 80, 100 and more thousand pounds per year running this as a parallel business to whatever they're doing, depending on how much time they want to put in. So it gives you the ability to create money to feed back into the pot to buy more properties for yourself. And uh, so it's a it's a fantastic strategy for someone that has a little bit more time, as Harminder has in more recent months and years, and 
is able to package a property up and then present it over. You do need to be registered in the United Kingdom to do this properly. Yeah, there's a process. Um, that's probably to go worth through. mentioning, Harms, actually, if you want to just elaborate slightly on that. Yeah. So a sourcing agent has a list of regulatory criteria that they have to meet. And uh, without, I don't, I don't want to go into detail, they will get, it will get confusing. But essentially, they have to be regulated, they have to be insured, they have to be a part of a, you have to ensure you can handle data. There's a checklist of things a sourcing agent must tick the box off to be considered a professional sourcing agent. So if you're on the other side of this, where you're saying, actually, I would like to work with a sourcing agent, then you've got to make sure they have these things in place. And I, I like the way you described it, Ro, because think about you as a sourcing agent or you as a buyer who's buying from a sourcing agent, you're essentially buying into an end-to-end package where yeah. the property is found, it's negotiated, the teams are all set up. If it's a distressed property like Ro mentioned, then you're going to need a build team to renovate this. Then once it's done, can they hand it to a letting agent to get it tenanted? All of that is handled as part of this end-to-end package. So that's what you're buying into. And as a sourcing agent, that's the service you're providing. Yeah. And people say to me, oh, is it only young people that do sourcing? Actually, I know sourcing agents who are in their 50s, late 50s. And I know young people who have started sourcing at the age of 18, 19 years of age. So it's, it's a really, it's a great business to, to develop if you've got the skill to find good deals. So this fits nicely under the cash category. And I think, Harms, let's just pause it there because there's other cash strategies we can talk about but i think they're two good contrasts there that can get people's appetite going and, and start to think okay well, what if i was to do two buy and renovate deals a year and maybe source five or six properties i could actually generate enough money to get me out of my job from a cash perspective as opposed to a passive income perspective and that would buy me some time then to start building the next area which would be my passive income I agree, Ro. So I think that's two good strategies which fall under that. So then the next thing to consider is the passive income part of this umbrella. So which ones would you like to talk about within passive income? Because there's a lot. And I'm also conscious of time as well. I think the classic one which people know is a buy to let. That's a great question, Harms. I think let's let's cover maybe four. There's so many strategies under passive income for the listener i mean genuinely there's something we call the income pyramid and the income pyramid works on the basis that at the bottom of the pyramid is where you're most likely to have the most number of properties in that strategy and they will likely produce the least amount of cash flow per property and then at the top of the pyramid you've got the highest income producing properties and you'll have less of them because they're bigger units. So we'll, we'll just touch on a few of those now between myself and Harms, maybe do four. But be mindful as you're listening to this, that when we talk about passive income, everything we refer to here is the income in your pocket before tax, but after you've taken into account mortgage running costs and, for example, management fees. So you would have your rent coming in minus your mortgage costs, minus your running costs, minus your management fee. That creates your passive income. So why don't you kick off with buy to let arms at the bottom of the pyramid and we'll sort of work our way up on a few. I like that, Ro. So the term passive income, before I dive into uh, buy to let, the term passive income, Ro, is an interesting one because let's just expand on what that means very briefly to listeners because there'll be listeners at home saying, no, nothing's passive income or that doesn't exist. So how can we just maybe expand on what that means? Because 
cash flow you've explained cash flow is income after all expenses so that's your net cash flow that's what you're going to receive in your bank account at the end of every month but what does passive mean because you know we can debate and say actually some of these strategies may need some work involved in which case it's not completely passive so how do you describe it to me passive is and this is interesting because you know network marketing is classifies in of the three categories of wealth we talked about earlier on network marketing classifies as business so it falls into the business category and people used to say oh network marketing is a fully passive income well you know i've been involved with network marketing businesses and i've also spoken at the conferences and if you speak to the people that are high level they will say yeah well okay it is a passive income in the sense that every month you get a monthly income coming in but you're still really involved with helping people build the business and you're still involved with getting out and putting the work in to help them recruit and bring new people into the business to help it expand and grow and it's a good business model for the right people it can be very successful as long as you put the time in like any business with real estate it is passive i think it's more so passive but there is still a level of involvement needed so for me a pass a true passive income residual income would be where you put work in once and then you every single month get money and you do nothing at all but i don't believe and i think you'll vouch for this as well and we we're not here to the concept isn't to sell you on the idea of this being absolutely hands off because it's not. I think what happens is your initial amount of work goes in at the start, the, the buying, the finding the property, the doing the due diligence, putting the offer in, owning the property, renovating it if you need to, getting the work done, getting it ready and fit to be rented out. Then there's a massive drop in the amount of effort. Then you hand it over to a management company and whereas, you know, in your job, to earn a thousand pounds, you might have had to work, I don't know, the equivalent of a week every month, depending on your salary or two weeks a month to get your thousand pounds. Now, if you've got a, a, say a HMO property producing a thousand pounds a month, you may only spend half an hour that month on that property to generate that same amount of money of a thousand pounds. And the half an hour may have been you simply checking a few things on the financials, checking the mortgage statements, possibly doing a little bit of admin and then dealing with a phone call from a letting agent to say, oh, we've got a slight problem with um, a leak on a toilet or would you be okay? We've got a tenant here. We're just doing some checks on them and you might spend 10 minutes on that. That's it. So it is a passive income, meaning that it comes in every single month whilst you're asleep, but there is some time involvement still to ensure that the business runs smoothly. Does that make sense, Harmander? That from makes your sense. Uh, yeah, that's, that's fantastic. I just wanted you to clarify it for the listeners because everybody attaches a, a meaning to certain words and knowing wh what people's opinions are out there yeah. on passive income. And it, it, and I think you've explained it very, very well, uh, whereas there is time involved, but it just happens to be in different parts of the business and yeah. actually not that much time that you would really think about. So, you know, managing the portfolio doesn't take that long uh, if you consider can compare it to a, a conventional job so in that sense it's, it's definitely passive caveat there is depending on how educated and how well you've chosen your tenants so if you're mm. listening to this and you're thinking well i've had properties in the past and i spent a lot of time on it my question to you would be what sort of education did you do before you built your portfolio? Well, none. I had four properties. I kind of did them on my own. Okay, what kind of tenants did you have? I bought them in really low value areas and the tenants were typically people that weren't necessarily classified as the best type of tenants. But I just thought if I go for a cheap property, then at least I can, you know, 
get into it with less money. So it's like anything. If you go to a one-star hotel, you'll have a different type of client using a one-star hotel to a five-star hotel. So how you build the business will reflect on how much time you have to put into the business once it's been built, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, that's fantastic. Okay, so let's start with passive income strategy number one, which is a buy-to-let property. Yeah. Now, you may be listening to this thinking, oh, everybody knows about buy-to-let property. Why are you really talking about this? Well, if you just listen to what Ro just said, actually not all buy-to-let properties are equal and not all buy-to-let properties will generate you a net cash flow. And we've had a load of people who come to us and say, yep, I've got three, four, five buy-to-let properties. And then when we run the finances on those particular houses, their face expression changes when they realize they're not making any money for that particular house. So think about a buy-to-let property as this uh, or as such in, in the sense that it's a, you're going to have a, a family or you're going to have an individual who's going to be renting that house from you, that particular unit. It could be a two-bed, a one-bed, a three-bed property. It could be a flat. But a buy-to-let works very much so the fact that they are renting that house from you and an agreement is in place, which is a AST. Now, that AST allows them to let that property as a single family or an individual, uh, depending on how you've got it set up. Now, that's in the simplest form. So then once they move into the house, you've got an agreement which is agreed via an AST. It could be for you directly if you're that kind of landlord who deals with your tenants directly or a letting agent who will be arranging this process for you. Now, once they're in the house, they will then pay you a monthly rent for being able for that service of staying in your particular buy-to-let property, which is evident in the name now. You've bought the house in order to let it and you let it to a single occupancy for family and the reason i say single occupancy will be it'll make sense when we talk about when Ro talks about hmos in a moment and they will then pay you rent every month that rent will either go through your letting agent into your bank account or it will go directly to you then you will pay all your expenses associated with that house i.e the mortgage the insurance, the bills, and then what is left over at the end of the month becomes your net cash flow and can contribute now towards your income, your livelihood, future investments, depending on how you got your finances set up. So does that make sense? Well, I want to keep it really simple because the next level from a buy-to-let is how you have to ensure that the buy-to-let is legal for your tenant to reside in it, to make sure the contracts are appropriate and watertight, what to do when tenants don't pay your rent. All of these questions instantly come into people's minds. Yeah, exactly. Where should I buy the buy-to-let? How much money should the buy-to-let typically give me in my bank account? So that's a lot of questions there. But I guess if we put an income, a monetary value associated with it, a good buy-to-let will give you a net cash flow income of anything between 150 to 250 pound. That should be a nice target to go ahead and understand what should be that minimum target figure so and that we need to put that in context as well because harminder's referring there to a property that in the united kingdom you'd be buying in the range of what 50 to 80000 pounds something like that yep so en- an entry level for a buy to let that works quite well would be 50 60 70 80 in some areas you can talk about 90 to 100,000 pounds yeah. but you got to ensure that the rent will still allow you to receive that minimum rental income 
net cash flow at the end of every month of 150, 200, 250 pound plus. So that's the benchmark there for buy to let. Now there's a lot of legals behind it. And I think the government's getting stricter and stricter, which for a professional landlord, I guess that's the best way to describe us. A professional landlord is, that's actually fantastic because it means we are greater protected. The tenant is greater protected. The stakeholders in between are greater protected but also the fact that it reduces the competition in the market. So one of the questions we do get, Ro, is, well, aren't everybody buying this? Well, actually, not really. Mm. You know, are everybody buying a buy-to-let property? Well, not actually, no, not really. The answer is it's become very much a sophisticated, regulated business in the fact that not everybody wants to be a part of that anymore. So yeah, there's, and there's, a, there's, there's, there's a selective licensing. There. There's a whole whole bunch yep. of things that have been introduced and when harm i mean look the, the range from a buy to let is 150 to 250 but you can get three 350 400 yep. depending on where you're buying and and what the yields are in that particular area i think the other thing to add is that if you're listening to this and you're listening outside the uk i know you might have to just think again you know literally listen again and say what well, hold on did they just say like 200 300 pounds a month cash flow and i'm only buying it for 60 70 80 90,000 pounds yes if i went to melbourne with you you'd be looking at buying a one or two bedroom apartment there for maybe five six seven eight hundred thousand dollars singapore probably up upwards of half a million hong kong upwards of half a million three quarters of a million so their yields are very very low they don't get these kind of cash flows and that's sometimes hard for people to understand so what we talk about is you've got to have a right strategy and then when you find a strategy you want you've got to find an area where that strategy works and it may be you're listening to this thinking but it doesn't work where i live dr rowan harminder that's fine in that case what you need to do is invest in that other area and that's why so many international investors are buying in the United Kingdom, because they can still live in their own country, but buy properties like the one Harmind is talking about there, generate a cash flow, have a corporate setup, you know, have the right company structure, which we can talk about in the second part of this podcast when we record it, and still be able to live in their home country. So there's some really good benefits. It's not you don't have to be inhibited by the fact that that strategy doesn't live where you are based. I think that's the key thing to remember. Yeah, fantastic. As well. Yeah. So your buy to lets can be anywhere in the country. And which is why I alluded to and hinted about the letting agent having a and we'll talk about this in probably the second part now in terms of an operational team that needs to assist you with this business. Yeah. That's what yeah. I mentioned. So, Ro, OK, what's the next level up from a buy to let? Because I spoke about single occupancy, one assured short hold tenancy with one family or one tenant for an individual house. What's, yeah, I mean, what's look, a, the, there yeah. is another level above that, but I think that might be one that you cover. So uh, we'll just jump up a couple of levels and talk about what we call a house of multiple occupation in somewhere like Australia, New Zealand. If you're listening, you might call it a boarding house. In America, you might call it a multi-unit type strategy, shared accommodation. This is where you have one roof, but multiple tenants with separate agreements. So, and actually this is a very important point just to pick up on. If you're listening to this and you're outside the United Kingdom, be aware that in our country, in the United Kingdom, we have ASTs, Assured Shorthold Tenancy Agreements, which are a legally binding contract between us and the tenant. Whereas if you went to South Africa, Australia and other countries, it's quite difficult for the landlords and they get nervous because they say, well, I'd like to do this, but how do I get my tenants out the property? Well, the beautiful thing about, for example, the United Kingdom is our tenancy 
emergency agreements allow us to put them in place for a certain period and under certain conditions we can invoke uh, a notice to the tenants and then legally ask them to leave the property which means that our lending in the United Kingdom is so much more relaxed because the banks are able to look at it and say well actually this is great I know I can get vacant possession of the property because you've got the ASTs in place. So I thought I'd just mention that, Harms, because when I've travelled all over the world, I think I've taught in about 20 different countries now, one of the biggest questions that comes up is people say, you have a Dr. Rowe, what about getting the tenants out? And I say, what do you mean? Well, in our country, we can't get them out. Oh, well, in our country, in the United Kingdom, we actually can through an AST agreement. Yes, fantastic. And for those listening, it's great to have Rowan here talk about this because you have answered questions from people globally about investing in the UK market. So it's great to have that level of experience being discussed here. So yeah, because our listeners are international and you're right, somebody will be listening thinking, I'm sorry, because you're going to hear some income figures in a moment. You're going to be like, I'm I'm sorry, what? You can make 200, 300, 500, a thousand pound a month from these properties. I I don't believe you. And and the truth is you can. So, for example, the House of Multiple Occupation strategy is where you might have a four or a five bedroom. And there are different categories of HMO, but that's for you to learn at a different level. But let's say Harmina talked about a buy-to-let property where you have a family in there and it's a family of three kids, two adults. And it's a four bedroom house with two rooms downstairs, a lounge, a dining room and then a kitchen. Well, as a HMO landlord, a house of multiple occupation landlord, you could actually rent out five of those rooms because the three bedrooms upstairs plus the lounge and the, and the dining room downstairs can all be converted into rentable rooms. You would have a separate tenancy agreement on each separate room. So you could have you know, an architect living in one room. You could have a young junior doctor living in another one. You might have a young teacher living in another one. And they all share the same kitchen and utilities there and they cook in that space. They go back to their rooms. They might have an ensuite where they can shower, have their own TV in that room. And because of that, what you have is five different profit centers, five different points of income coming in as opposed to one income in the buy-to-let. What that means is you typically will double or even triple your income on that property. So whereas Harminder's example of making, say, 250 to 300 pounds a month cash flow as a buy to let, the very same property in the same area, assuming that the demand is there and it's the right demographic for that area. In other words, the property set up and you know it's in the right location near a hospital, near a central location, train station, whatever, university, depending on your type of tenant you're probably looking at somewhere around 750 to a thousand pounds a month cash flow on that same property that was only producing 250 to 300 as a buy to let. Now, if you then scale up and went to say a six, seven, eight, nine bedroom property, now we're starting to look at incomes of passive incomes of 1500 to 2000 pounds a month in your pocket. That's a general rent of maybe 3000 a month minus the mortgage, minus the running costs, leaving you with about 1,500 in your pocket, thereabouts. Now, we won't go into running cost arms. I think we haven't got time to do that today. Maybe we could touch that in part two. But essentially what we're talking about here is a higher income per unit, which means you can get to your financial freedom targets with less property. So we're further up the income pyramid. Now, there's more running costs, but we allow for that in our cash flow calculations. And there's more work to be done. There's more legislation. There's licensing to be done, etc. So there's a lot involved, but it does allow you to create more cash flow per unit. 
Mm, fantastic. And something in between what you've just described there, Ro, which is a HMO, and what I originally described is a as a buy-to-let, sits another fantastic passive income strategy, which is known as social housing. Now, typically the people who this is ideal for is somebody who's looking for a hands-off business. So they're happy to do the work in advance upfront, but then they want a hands-off business for a an agreed or a set period of time. This is also great for somebody who maybe says, look, I love the idea of property, but I don't want to get into the private rental sector, which is, you know, potentially what me and Rove just discussed. And I don't like the stigma attached to a classic landlord and all this kind of stuff may be playing in your head. Well, what if you had the opportunity to provide housing for vulnerable people, people in society who really need a place to live and they need taken care of, they need social care, social help. Um, and this can be anything from homelessness, people who have been uh, subjected to abuse, asylum seekers, a whole range of people who just need that additional step and integration back into society, we have an opportunity to provide housing for. And Ro, I know you do this. I, I uh, implement this strategy as well. And what's very special about this and why it sits in between is because it sits in between because the income is roughly that of just between a buy-to-let and a HMO. So you can typically get income of 350 400 500 600 700 pound uh, and in some strategies about a thousand pound a month on these kind of properties the question i'd get is okay but why does it is it hands off why do you say that harms well actually once you have done the work and you provided a house for an organization which has given you a specific criteria and you you hand that house to them in exchange they're going to put a contract on it and i'm keeping the language very simple here but they're going to give you a contract which essentially guarantees your rent over a period of time. Now, these guaranteed rent contracts include maintenance, depending on what you've negotiated, include maintenance. They can even include them paying the bills for you, them paying the council tax, them providing a grant, a loan to help you with the renovation, to build it, to bring it up to standard. And these contracts can range from a length of time, anywhere between two years, three years, five years, and even 10 years plus, uh, we've been speaking to a sophisticated investor who's got contracts now locked in at 25 years, guaranteed rent with all maintenance handled. And I get excited about this. You probably can hear my voice. I'm getting excited about this because this yeah. is truly hands off. When we talk about passive, once the work has been done, as long as you keep a good relationship with these organizations, then this is completely hands off. So what do I mean by that? It means the income is guaranteed. So as part of the agreement with you, they'll continue to pay you into your bank account every single month, regardless of if the house is empty or not. And that's that's quite magical as a strategy. So Ro, anything you want to add to that one? I think particularly at the age I'm at now, when an opportunity comes along to get a more hands-off strategy, it's certainly I, I jump on it. In the early days, we We've been doing social housing from the start, but we've then broadened into a whole range right across the government housing, the asylum seeker strategies, which, you know, you, you I know do as well. And I think for us, that's where my main focus is at the moment. For those of you listening from overseas, certainly we do have people that we know of that come in from overseas and they like these type of strategies because it enables them to be able to own a property in the United Kingdom, get a guaranteed rent for three, five, six, seven, eight years 
and still be living in their home country and not have to worry as much about the changeover in tenancies, etc. So it, it's a brilliant strategy for not having to be so involved and still having an asset that's going to appreciate. Now, granted, it may not appreciate in value as much as, say, if you are renting in a central city location to a professional company or professional let. And because of that, the market's going to grow quicker. So the balance between the two is, you know, if you go for a, a buy-to-let strategy as a professional landlord for professional tenants, you're most likely going to have higher capital growth on your portfolio, but not necessarily the guaranteed income for the five, seven years. Whereas if you go for the social housing asylum seeker type strategy, you may not get as much capital growth because those sorts of properties are usually in areas of regeneration. However, what you will get is this guaranteed income. So it's a balance. Uh, from balance. My and with every strategy we're describing, there's going to be pros and cons. Yeah. But they also must meet your criteria. Do you want to be hands off? Do you want to be hands off or somewhere in between? So, Ro, talk to us about a, this is probably somewhere in between, unless you can really nail it, which is a serviced accommodation. And by the way, don't think of these all as being mutually exclusive. So, so we run these strategies parallel. You could be doing these parallel to each other. So we're just breaking them down, but you might end up with a portfolio with a mixture and you should actually have a blended portfolio anyway. So the last one here, and I'll keep this brief, is serviced accommodation. So you're probably familiar with bookings.com, Airbnb. It's become extremely popular in the last five years. When it first came out, everyone thought it was a novel idea and it's, it's stormed the hotel industry and the general public are now in a position where they can buy a property and rent it out as though they were renting it out as a hotel. So four rooms in a property, each one rented out on an overnight rate. So you might be getting on one property a thousand pounds, two thousand pounds a month if it was a HMO and you're renting the rooms out under long-term contracts. Whereas if you rented the rooms out on a daily basis, i.e. 80, 90, 100 pounds per night, as opposed to per week, you could suddenly see that same property producing instead of a total rent of say 2000 a month you might be getting 7000 a month which means your net income might be 3000 a month as opposed to 1500 pounds a month as a as a HMO and that sounds really appealing because of the money but you have to think of it as now you're running a hotel mm. so the HMO is more hands on than the buy to let the Airbnb is more hands on than the HMO and the buy to let unless, of course, you were to engage somebody to run it for you. So I have, for example, a property in London, which has a value of about a million pounds, and that's an Airbnb property. And what we do is we have a company that does that for us. So we take less income on the property than if we were to do the whole thing ourselves. But we take more income than if we rented it out as a normal buy to let. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so the concept here is that Airbnbs can be totally, you run the whole thing yourself, but then it's like you're running a hotel. So you might say, well, I don't really mind about that row. There's a great location close to where we live. We can see there's a huge opportunity. I can get a cleaner in. I can get somebody to do the towels, the servicing and everything else. I'll just manage the bookings. But you're going to generate from that a lot of revenue. You've got to weigh up that revenue versus the time put in. Whereas you might say, OK, I want to put less time in now and I get a company to even deal with the bookings, a company to deal with the servicing of it and the cleaning of it and all the towels. But for that, they might take of your total revenue. They might take 
40%. So you keep only 60%, but that 60% will still likely be a lot higher than had you rented it as a buy-to-let property. So you're going into the world of hotelier, albeit on a more private level. And it's a great strategy for someone that is in an area or wanting to invest in an area where there's a lot of interest, like central London, near airports, near major cities, near major theme parks, or anything where people are traveling in and out a lot and they want to stay for short periods, this is a great opportunity. It doesn't work for a big house. You think, I found a great house. I'm going to turn it into Airbnb. Where is it? It's right in the middle of the country. Where about in the country? Well, it's just like, there's nothing really there. It's a small town in the middle of nowhere. You're unlikely to get a lot of traffic. So you could generate an income, but then the voids, meaning the number of days in a year the property is empty, would be a lot higher than had you bought the property near the town, near the big museums, near the big attractions and the theme parks or whatever it is that's there. So it's a good strategy, can produce an income of thousand two thousand three thousand pounds a month in your pocket depending on where you're buying how big the property is and whether you're doing it more yourself or you're going to be hands off fantastic described fantastically right so let's now talk about the final part which is creative right this one normally blows people's minds i don't know how we want to discuss this one so maybe we do well i'm thinking maybe rent to rent and lease option just to keep it simple Maybe yeah, just explain the difference because because we could go on lots of different strategies there, couldn't we? Yeah, and I think um, we'll keep these explanations really simple because I think if the listener can just understand it on a concept level, because these can be quite complex even to grasp on a yeah. concept level. And bear in mind that what we've already covered, if you apply just maybe two or three of what we strategies just taught you, and you apply them over the next two to three years you could generate a passive income that has the potential to step you back from your job in just what we've covered already if you are learning it and studying it in detail. So remember, just to recap, cash, cash strategies, passive income, just done four there. Let's talk about creative strategies. So um, I'll tackle, if I do lease options or do you want to do lease options? Uh, you can do lease options and I'll do rent to rent. How about we do okay, that? So in simple terms, I'll give you a quick definition. An option is the right to buy a property at a given price over a given period of time. So meaning that I can have the right to buy a property from Harminder. He might be an elderly gentleman who's going to retire and go live with his kids. Kids are in their mid thirties and they've offered him to come. They've got a granny annex and him and his wife are going to go and live there. And they've got this house and the pension's really poor and he's just going to leave the money in the bank, maybe making less than 1%, probably a lot less than that right now in the current market. And I say to Harminder, well, you know, your house is worth 200,000. That 200,000 sat in a bank might make you less than a thousand pound per year, maybe 2000 if you're very lucky. How about I give you 5,000 pound a year? So I offered to give him roughly 400 pounds a month, which is a lot more than he's getting. And it's a five, six bedroom house. I know I could probably rent that out for two to two and a half thousand pounds a month. So Harms and I have a contract and the contract states that I have the right to buy the property from Harminder in five years time in this example. And he then moves in with his kids. He gets a monthly amount from me, which is a lot more than he would have got from if he'd left the money in the bank. I have the right to buy the house, but I'm not obligated to buy it. So over the five year period, I can then in the agreement with Harminder, sublet those rooms out and get two, three thousand pounds a month coming in. I pay him 
400 pounds a month. I have my management costs, my running costs. I might keep a thousand, fifteen hundred pounds from that, depending on how I've structured the deal. I've never owned the property. So this is about controlling a contract and having the right to buy as opposed to physically owning the property. Who is this great for? Everybody. Who is it particularly great for? People that are starting out that don't have a lot of seed capital, a lot of starting capital, can't get a mortgage. And we'll come to that in step three in, in the old component number three in just a moment. So it could be that you're listening to this thinking, ah, oh, but I love everything they're talking about, but I'm not in a position to get a mortgage. I'm not in a position. I've got poor credit history. I don't have a lot of capital to start with. Well, in the United Kingdom, and Harminder's done a few of these himself, I know when he started out, certainly, you only have to put a pound down. So I can have a contract with Harminder and put a pound down and secure that deal. Same thing in America, same thing in places like Canada. Most countries, it works in a similar way. So after the five-year period, Harminder then sells the property to me for whatever price we've agreed five years before. Or it might be I choose not to buy the property and then he then can go and sell it to the open market. So there's lots of different ways to do this. But the beautiful thing about this is it could be that I've done four of those in a year. I've got four contracts set up to buy four properties in five years time. I'm controlling an income. I'm controlling the property. I just don't physically have to buy the property at this stage, which saves me a lot of entry costs, a lot of capital costs. And at this stage, it's a quicker way to get into the property market. I'm going to pause there because we could talk a lot about lease options. We could talk about options for a long time, especially because Rose mentioned probably the simplest form there to get the concept over Correct. towards you. But there's over 50 different ways, <laughs> starting ways to structure a option. So remember, this is in the creative strategy. So everything here is about structuring a deal, negotiating a deal, identifying areas of control versus ownership, which is very different to conventional methods now the amazing thing is you can apply a lease option to every strategy that we've spoken about in cash generating and passive income so that's where it gets very exciting so think about this as a way to implement what we spoke about so far using a tool called lease option so it's fantastic Ro, i will talk about rent to rent now which is very yeah. similar to lease options however it's you don't have the right to buy in the future. So it's almost a even more simplistic method. So I'm glad Ro explained lease options first. So this, this makes it easier for me. So rent to rent, imagine if, and I'll use this, I'll, I'll flip the example around. So imagine Ro had a that house in London as an example, and he makes a thousand pound a month rental to a single let family on that house. I say, great. So as the rent to rent business, I would approach Ro and say, well, I can guarantee you a rent of a thousand pound a month. No voids, nothing. We will take the maintenance on. But what we would like to do is run it as a business. And what we would like to do is run it as a HMO business. And the way we do that is we will rent out all five of these individual rooms to individual people. Uh, we know we're going to get the rooms full because it's a very high demand hotspot area. But to save you the headache of running that business, because it is time intensive, I'm going to guarantee your single let rent via a contract that's all agreed uh, through solicitors. And you will collect that paycheck every month, guaranteed. And then we will operate this business from this single let property. And are you OK with that? And then Ro would say, yep, actually, um, I like the sound of that. I've had a few voids, tenant turnover. That yeah. works fantastically for me. So 
that would that would be then the arrangement. Now we would agree that for maybe three years, five years, it could be two years. And if he's got received his guaranteed rent every month for two years, that there's an automatic extension which goes to five years. That's up to your creative negotiation as part of that. So it's really taking uh, guaranteeing somebody a rent. And this is again the simplest form that this can be operated with. Uh, this can be applied to uh, residential houses, commercial properties, everything in between. So hopefully that makes sense. Well, I wanted to keep that simple because you explained it a large part in lease options. Yes. But what we don't have in rent to rent is the opportunity to purchase the house at the end or during the agreement. Exactly. And th mm. there's lots of refinements and detail in here, like dealing with the lender and getting consent to let and all those things. But that's for you to discover, you know, as you look into the strategies. But the key thing is you get an understanding of it. And mm. look, we could go and talk about creative financing and how to raise money and all those other things. But for now, I think that gives our listeners at least a good idea of the range. And you could just literally pick one from each of those areas. And you're away. You've got three strategies to get on with and start to build a business around. So I'm just looking at the uh, the time. How long have we been going? Have we got time to maybe cover another component just before we, we we've been up? going for one hour, 37 minutes? Oh, so, my gosh. <laughs> so my suggestion would be I'm almost feeling like this is going to be a three parter. The listeners are probably <laughs> laughing at home. So if you're listening at home, you probably can very quickly realize why property is not just reading a newspaper and learning about it or reading a book. I mean, we have just scratch I don't think I think we just cleaned the dust off the surface here we haven't even scratched the surface exactly it's okay shall we shall we tackle the, just component number three because we don't right. have to go into so much detail on this one yeah let's do component and, number three and, and then we'll line the there for the next the next podcast yeah that sounds good so component number three so bear in mind that we've talked about vision and we've talked about education strategies component number three is really making sure that you understand and have got your credit status up to date and you understand about mortgages and what type of mortgages are needed to get you into the property market. So remember, we, we're we now deciding, I've got, oh, I want to do this strategy, I want to do flips, buy and selling. I'd like to do some HMOs, maybe some social housing, and I'd like to do a rent to rent, for example. Well, rent to rent, you don't necessarily need to worry so much about the mortgages and your credit status, but the others you probably do. Now, we can't give you financial advice on this podcast. We're not independent financial advisors and the caveat I would say is that anything that we say to you during the course of this podcast and the other one that's going to follow is do go and seek independent financial advice from a financial advisor and everything we're sharing with you is from information only uh, from an educational perspective just to share with what things that we do so credit status is different in every country if you go to America it'll be different to Canada to Singapore Australia wherever you're living at the moment Scandinavia here in the United Kingdom but it is important to work on it as soon as possible. So for example, in the United Kingdom, people might go to Experian, who's one of the credit agencies, and there are three or four key credit yeah, agencies. So, so we've got four, which is Crediva, Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion. Uh, yes. TransUnion used to be called uh, Core Credit. So there's four core credit agencies in the UK, yeah. Yeah, those four are really the ones that determine what your history is but unfortunately you don't know what that is and they may hold different information to the other one so without going into lots of detail right now just be aware that if you've ever been rejected on a loan or a credit card or even a mortgage and they say you need to go and speak to Experian or Crediva or Equifax it's the reason for that is because they have done a check against that particular credit agency now 
as time has gone on, there's a lot of information about this out there. And I think at this stage, what I would recommend you do is, if you haven't done it already, is just go and delve to find out what your current credit score is, what your current credit status is. And if you do that, it'll give you an indication of whether you've got any problems. Now, when we're teaching this in detail, we actually explain what to do and how to do it and how to go and check it for yourself. But be aware that this is a very important component of you becoming a property investor. And it's not just checking it now, but it's cleaning it up. It's keeping an eye on it. It's maintaining it such that when you're doing mortgage applications, it doesn't hamper you. Because, for example, in the United Kingdom, if your name is spelt wrong on a mortgage application or a credit card application or a utility bill, uh, your mobile phone bill or anything like that, it will drop your credit score by maybe 100 to 200 points. Mm. So you happen to have a mobile phone that you had for 12 months. They spelt your name wrong. You've never bothered changing it because you just thought, oh, it's got my name wrong. One spelling mistake on your on your mobile phone bill could actually lower your credit score when you go for a mortgage application simply because somebody else made a mistake with your surname or your first name. So these are simple things, but they're really important. So before I touch on mortgages, Harms, do you want to add anything to that? I would I would say start start exploring this in detail as soon as possible, because in short, the better your credit score the uh, the greater your ability to get lending the more adverse uh, there's probably a correct term to describe it but the more adverse your credit score will reduce the ability to get lending now that doesn't mean you can't invest or have a property business because we've already spoke about creative strategies that that mean you don't have to own so don't let that be a barrier but what it should be is a wake-up call to very quickly start exploring it and repairing it and there's some great advice out there in order to do that. But we would, t- like we we'll say, we would typically go into detail. So I think that's the only thing I would add is yeah. do take the credit score seriously because it affects everything. It affects whether you can get a credit card. It affects whether you can get a mobile phone. So explore it. It's basically a financial history on you. And they are scoring you based on how you manage, I guess, how you manage to pay back money you borrowed. That's essentially mm. how they will start to score you, which defines what a credit score is. That's all I would add, Ro. So the and next that, step that then, leads nicely into mortgages because into if, mortgages. You're, if you're going to deal with a good mortgage broker, a high-level mortgage broker, whole-of-market mortgage broker, then they will need to get an understanding of what your credit status is because it doesn't help them and it doesn't work in their favor to go applying for a mortgage for you only to find out that you've got a bad credit history because causes you problems, but it also doesn't reflect well on them as a mortgage broker going to a bank only to find out you've got a problem. Now, look, there are high street mortgage brokers. There are specialist mortgage brokers. Myself and Harminda tend to work with specialist brokers. We have a couple that we work with because they have access to the whole of the market. They're used to dealing with property investors. So if you've ever found yourself in a situation trying to get a mortgage for an investment property and the broker said to you, you can't do that, and you've only been dealing with somebody on a high street, maybe through an estate agent, good chance that that broker doesn't want to put the work in, doesn't want to put the effort in, and it's easier for them to say no to you, can't help you, than actually spend an hour or two getting a mortgage over the line for you. So having the right broker is really important. Now, in the United Kingdom, our mortgages are not defined in the same way they might be in other countries. So if you go to somewhere like Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, USA, even across Central Europe, your earnings will play a big part in your ability to borrow mortgages for investments. So, for example, if I took you to Singapore 
and you went to buy an investment property, they would say, OK, let's just check your salary. Can your salary cover this mortgage? Yes, it can. Right. You can get an investment property. So then about a year later, you decide to go and buy another one. And then the bank say, OK, so your house that you live in and the first property you bought, the mortgage is this much. Is your salary enough to cover that as well as the new property? Yes, it can. Great. So you can buy another one. Then you go to buy a third one in about two years time. At which point the bank say, I'm sorry, you can't buy this property because your earnings will only cover these three properties, your home and these two investments. So you're going to have to sell one of these other investments to buy the third one. So they restrict you. And this is common across most other countries. They restrict you based on your affordability. Whereas in the United Kingdom, it's a completely different model. Now, you're going to have to seek advice on this. But as a simple rule of thumb, you can get pretty much as many properties as you want as a property investor based on the property stacking up. In other words, the rent has to exceed the mortgage by a certain amount. And I'm not going to go into the details of it here. The bank send a valuer out, the valuer appraises the property. Then they say, yes, this property is worth this much. And the bank say, great. So the value of the property is correct. The rent covers the mortgage by a certain factor and they check your credibility and they look at your salary just to make sure you've got a certain minimum th threshold of salary. And they say, OK, we're happy to lend on this property. Great. You buy your first one. Go to your second property. First one and the second one are usually the toughest to get over the line with when it comes to buying properties as an investor. Once you've got your first couple, it actually, oddly enough, gets easier. Then you get to four, which is classified now as a, a portfolio landlord. And then there's some other new criteria that have come in in the last couple of years. But each time you buy these properties, they look at the properties as a standalone business. So that's why Harminder, you know, at a young age was to go able to go and buy one, two, three, four, five, et cetera, because even though he was in his 20s when he did this, they weren't looking at to do with his affordability. They were simply looking at every property as it's a standalone entity. And so, so many people that I teach overseas, they are blown away by this. I mean, I was over in Australia over the summer last year and people couldn't believe that you could go into the UK and we were introducing them to some of our students from Australia that had bought five, six, seven, eight properties in the United Kingdom in the space of a year or two. And yet they were struggling to even buy two or three in Australia mm, because our amazing. mortgage system is different. Yeah. So a, a typical question we get is, Okay, well, that's great. But how much would the bank lend me uh, typically for a an investment property? Yeah, Do you, you can you can answer that one because you obviously mm, okay. know it. So. Just flip that. Imagine Will just asked that to me, Harms. Okay, so Harms, how, how much would the bank uh, lend you that? So typically, if you look at a conventional, let's just keep this simple, conventional buy-to-let property, the banks will lend you typically, and this can vary slightly, but a sensible loan-to-value of 75%. Yeah. Okay, so what does that mean? Okay, so let's imagine there's a house which is worth and you have decided to purchase it for a hundred thousand pounds. Great. Now you take this house to the to the mortgage broker, a whole of market mortgage broker, and you say, Right, I've got this house, I'm gonna buy it for a hundred thousand pounds. So the mortgage broker would say, Okay, well, there's this lender, this lender, this lender who will lend you 75% of that purchase price. So what does that mean? That means they will give you and they will well won't physically go through you, but they will lend you £75,000, which is 75% of £100,000, towards the purchase of that property. And that's fantastic because what you then have to do is just produce 25% of the outstanding balance, which will be £25,000. 
So that's where we talk about a powerful subject, which is called leverage. But I don't know. I don't think we're going to go dive into that yet. We, should, we don't have time to cover it now. Correct. So, so they will they will give you 75% typically. I think that's a good starting point to understand how much the banks back and how much the banks believe in property in the UK. I think as well, just adding to what Harmind is saying there, is if you're not, if you don't believe this, and when I was in Germany about three or four years ago, they struggled with this. They struggled with two things, 75 cent loan to value and also an interest only mortgage. Ah, so, yeah, yeah, I didn't mention that. Yep. So, so in the United Kingdom, our banks will look, they'll take the rent as a factor, they'll take the value as a factor, and then they'll simply say, we'll give you 75% mortgage, and all you have to do is pay the interest on that. You don't have to pay the capital down because they don't consider the risk to be as high as in some other countries. Whereas if I went to Germany and other places around the world, they're nearly always capital and interest mortgages. The same thing across most of Europe because the banks want to see the mortgage reduced because they maybe not have as much confidence in the property market. But in the United Kingdom, for example, Typically, properties double every seven to 10 years, say 10 years to keep it conservative. So in the bank's view, in Harminda's example, they, you know, your 100 grand property, 75,000 pound mortgage. The bank's view is in 10 years time, that property is going to be worth probably 200,000. So they know that even if you sell the house in 10 years and the mortgage is 75, they're going to get their mortgage cleared. That means that your cash flow goes up because you're not paying capital every single month. And we'll get to this on the analysis section a little bit later in, in the second part of the podcast. So our mortgages can be interest only, 70, 75, even 80 in some cases, as Mahmoud has talked about. And you can take them out for 25 years or so. So what it enables you to do is spread the payments, reduce the monthly payments and increase your cash flow, which is why it's such a favorable market for us. Mm. And I think at that point there, we better pause because we could. <laughs> yeah. And fantastic. Thanks for finishing off that part because yeah, that's, that's the key thing, which even when I, when I explain to my clients and, and people who come to us and say, yeah, but don't have to pay the mortgage off. Why don't I have to pay the mortgage off right now? Um, well, the banks don't want you to, so why would you? So that's a simplistic view to that. So I agree, Well, let's take a pause for now. And I know we've got some action points for the whole 10 components, True. but what's one thing we can just leave them with for now? Well, and if, if I was to start, yeah, I would yeah. say focus on just taking one thing out from today that you can do immediately. And for me, that would be if you have not explored it yet, or you haven't explored it in maybe six months, three months, or you maybe looked at it two years ago and now you don't know what your credit score is, mm. go and explore your credit yeah, score, your credit status. Go have a look at those companies that we mentioned. It's simple to do once you identify the steps. But the first thing is just to find out where are you right now in regards to your status. That's a fantastic first step. Yeah, I like that. For me, I think it would just be have a think about do you want your business to be hands on or hands off? Mm. Yep. So if you're listening to this and you might be very busy, but you like the idea of real estate and property as a business, then you say, well, OK, let me build a business from a hands off perspective. And so there's strategies that enable you to do that, whereas it might be that you've got a lot of time available and you're thinking, I'd like to really make this a business I get involved with and physically get involved with as well. So you could be a hands on investor. So start thinking about could you fit this in? And it can be fitted in alongside whatever you're doing as a business and it can generate an income for you parallel. It's not, it doesn't have to detract from other things that you can do. So if you've got a great career and you love that career, if you've got a business that you love or whatever you do, and you say, well, I, 
okay, I don't want to do this because it's going to take away. No, it doesn't have to take away. It can actually add to what you're doing. So you just have to find a way to build the business parallel. And so the question is, do you want to be hands-on or hands-off? And I think if we hold it there, we've still got another, oh my gosh, seven components to cover in, in the next. In, and, and we will do because actually yeah. we spend a lot of time on two, which is strategies. And that is quite a big section. So we can get through the rest of these, I think, in the next podcast. Okay, fantastic. That sounds like a plan. So again, everything we've spoken about so far in part one will be in its own unique show notes and that'll be on growthtribes.com forward slash podcast where you can always find all of the show notes. Yeah. Uh, if, I, if I was to give just another additional tip uh, which has come to mind is definitely follow Rose specifically. By all means, follow me because you're going to see some behind the scenes of somebody actively building their property business. But Ro, you've been doing this for decades now. So head to Ro's Instagram, which is at drro.tv or his website, which is drro.tv. Head over to the blog section because there's lots of varied information there on property, things that apply right now as well during COVID-19 scenario, what to consider, uh, what should property investors be considering. So there's a article after article after article all focused around property investing so go check that out so apart from that that's myself and rose signing out from this special property wealth vehicle orientated episode which is part one and we'll see you on part two very soon so for myself and Rose, we're signing out we'll see you on the next one Hello, it's Dr. Rowe here. Harms and I would both like to personally thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Growth Tribes. And if you've gained just one insight, something positive that you're able to use on a personal level, on a professional level, to help your life, maybe even other people's lives, then we'd love it if you could take action on one of the following things. You can either simply subscribe so you don't miss out on any other great insights coming up in the future, you can share this podcast with close friends so they can also get the benefits of the tips and tools that we're sharing. Or it would be amazing if you could give us a review and let others know just how great this episode was. And finally, if you do have a question, don't forget to submit it on growthtribes.com forward slash podcast. Thank you again for listening. This is Dr. Rowan Harm signing out and we'll see you again on the next podcast. Yeah.